CrimeCon, the world's number one true crime event, is coming to London in June of 2021. Get inside the mind of serial killers and psychopaths, learn from leading criminologists, hear from the families and survivors, meet your favorite true crime podcasters, immerse yourself in forensic evidence and delve deeper into unsolved crimes. CrimeCon is the ultimate true crime weekend, partnered by Crime and Investigation. And I'm delighted to announce that I will be there all weekend, so come and join me. Quote mens rea when you're buying your ticket for a 10% discount. And as a special bonus, the first 10 people who contact me to let me know that they've bought a ticket using my special code will get a free mens rea t-shirt. Limited tickets are on sale now, and it's a COVID-proof purchase, so there's no need to worry. For more information, visit crimecon.co.uk and use my special code, MENSREA. You're listening to the MENSREA Podcast, and this is the story of the Daly Brothers. Paddy Daly lived alone in an old two-storey farmhouse in the tiny rural area of Upper Dunneen, near to Kilcummon, six miles from Killarney Town. His family lived in this isolated area near to the picturesque Ring of Kerry for nearly 200 years, and he ran a 105-acre farm there with some of the best land in the area. Paddy had inherited the farm from his mother after both his parents had died. It was unusual because Paddy was the second son in the family. His older brother Sean had been passed over, and the family story was that their mother hadn't gotten on with Sean's wife, Mary. So when Mrs. Daly passed away, Sean and his children moved into a small house on the land nearby, and Paddy took over the farmhouse. Sean worked the farm, and the two brothers split the profits. The two men managed and ran the farm for 30 years together in partnership, with little more than the sort of arguments to be expected between siblings. Sean was eventually joined in his work by his oldest son, James, and to a much lesser degree by his younger son, Eugene. But by 1995, the relationship had deteriorated somewhat, and Paddy, who was a quiet man who kept to himself, had become unhappy with the work being carried out. Some people thought that Paddy was considering retiring altogether, as he had asked about the procedure at a local meeting of the Irish Farmers Association, and still others had heard that he was considering changing the lease arrangement with his brother. The rumours were such that James, who was 29 at the time, had asked the local auctioneer if this was the case, but the agent had said he couldn't release that kind of information. And then, on Thursday, the 18th of January, 1996, Paddy Daly went missing. Paddy was reported missing that weekend, first by concerned neighbours and then by Sean, his brother. When Sean rang the guardie, he told them that his brother had gone off. 
It seemed possible that he had just walked away from the house. Paddy had a history of mental health difficulties, which was something that ran in the family, and was actually due to see his psychologist early the following week. Gurdy called out to the farm and did a cursory search of the house and the adjoining farmyard and began asking after Paddy in the area. They determined that the last sighting of Paddy had been on the previous Thursday, the 18th of January. The tall, thin Mr. Daly had been to the local post office and was wearing his wax jacket, a cap and wellies. That first weekend, Gardy had appealed for information from locals asking for anyone who had seen Paddy Daly or might know of his whereabouts to come forward. Gardy called to the farm a number of times over the following days. They searched the property on both the Sunday and Monday following the missing persons report. Initially, they had paid little attention to the well that sat directly opposite Patrick Daly's two-story farmhouse. The well had a concrete capstone on top of it and a rusted barrel had been placed on top of that. When Gardy removed the cap, police noted that an amount of sand had been poured into the well. But when they returned again on Tuesday and looked into the well again, they also noticed some blue binder twine, the type used to secure bales of hay or silage, where there had been nothing before. The twine was in the sand that had been disturbed at what was thought to be the bottom of the well. But when the twine was spotted, the guardie realised that there must be something under the sand. And so it was removed to reveal a layer of stones, which were sitting on top of plastic sheeting. Below that was Mr. Daly's body, which was submerged in water at the true bottom of the well, 22 feet below the surface and just 40 yards from his home across the road. So it was that on the afternoon of the 23rd of January, near to one o'clock, Gardy had discovered the body of Patrick Daly. He was 69 years old and had been missing for six days. Neighbours gathered near the farm when the news of the discovery of the body began to spread. Jack Finnegan, a friend and neighbour of the deceased, told the Irish Times, quote, He had fierce strength. He was a good ploughman and an honest type of man and a very hard worker. It's a terrible shock. We don't expect this kind of thing around here. This is a quiet place. End quote. The area around the well was sealed off and forensic experts arrived on Wednesday the 24th for a technical examination of the scene. The assistant state pathologist, Dr. Margaret Bolster, also attended that day. After the discovery of the body, Gardy said that they had upgraded the case to a murder inquiry and confirmed for the concerned press that there had been no sign of robbery in Patrick Daly's house. This effectively ruled out any connection of this case to a series of violent burglaries that had occurred in rural Ireland in recent times, where isolated and elderly victims had been specifically targeted for attack. Confronted with the arrival of local and national press in the tiny village, the Daly family expressed their shock and disbelief at what had become of Paddy. They said their uncle had no troubles in recent times. If he had, Paddy would have mentioned it to them. He had no enemies, wasn't a drinker, and he had very few interests beyond his work. They said that although Paddy had been treated in the past for depression, there was no question that mental health concerns had played a role in Paddy's death. That was pretty obvious given that his body had been found in the bottom of the well, covered in plastic. 
James, Paddy's eldest nephew, told the Irish Times, quote, He had no troubles because, if he did, he would have told us. The family had nothing whatsoever to do with this. We're totally out of it. We gave the Gardaí every possible assistance and, in fact, we were the ones who called them in when he went missing. Paddy was in good spirits and we all got on very well together. We worked well together as a team. He had nothing on his mind and there was nothing worrying him before he disappeared. I have no idea why anyone would do it. There's no reason why anyone would want to hurt him. It's unbelievable. End quote. James said the Gardaí had asked if no one had noticed the plastic missing, but he said they hadn't, and this was because they had kept it in various places all over the farm. He also confirmed to the reporters present that the farm had been in his uncle's name, and that he had expected that he would inherit it as the eldest nephew. He said his dad Sean and his mother Mary were very, very upset. Eugene, the younger of Paddy's nephews, also spoke to the Irish Times and said he'd been asked by the Gardaí about the plastic in the well too, with them inquiring whether he had put some of the stuff down the well. He said, quote, I started crying and said that I wouldn't be here if I'd done it. It's ridiculous. Why would we do it? It's bizarre and macabre. Nothing like this has ever happened before in the area. Still, we have to try to keep going. We're bearing up as well as we can, but I hope nobody gets the idea that we had anything to do with it. End quote. Mr. Daly's body was removed from the well on Wednesday afternoon. Dr. Bolster performed a post mortem examination at Tralee General Hospital and found that Patrick Daly had suffered from severe head wounds. He'd also sustained a broken shoulder, a broken arm, a perforated eardrum and a broken jaw, as well as fractured bones in his back and a smashed ribcage. It was concluded that Paddy had likely been beaten with a blunt instrument, something like a metal bar. Gardie continued their search of the farmland on the 25th of January. They were looking in particular for items that might have been used as a weapon in the attack. The search was also expanded to other nearby properties. Questionnaires were handed out to the neighbours in the area. Sean Daly spoke to the press on Thursday the 25th and said he had no idea why anyone would want to hurt Paddy, and he had no idea what the motive might have been. The Daly's neighbour, Mr Finnegan, theorised that Paddy's death might be linked with the disappearance of dogs the summer before. Paddy Daly had two dogs go missing, and the 80-year-old neighbour Jack had another go without a trace. Paddy and he had been deeply upset by this, and Mr Finnegan said that the incident had led to tension and bad blood in the area. Jack Finnegan also said that he believed Paddy had been troubled by something since before Christmas, but said the victim hadn't told him what it was. On Friday the 26th, the Irish Times reported that Gardy had a definite theory in the case, but they weren't expecting to make any early arrests. Later that morning, Patrick Daly's funeral was held in his tiny parish church of Kilcummon. A small congregation gathered to pay respects to the local man. The parish priest told those gathered, quote, These days, our newspapers are full of news concerning violence, but when it comes so close to home, we feel double the impact. It will take our community a long time to recover, end quote. He also asked that the family of Patrick Daly be remembered in people's prayers. As people filed out of the church after the Requiem Mass, they shook hands with members of the Daly family. Patrick was then buried in the nearby Old Kilcommon Cemetery. 
The Daly's old farmhouse was visible from the church where the burial took place, still surrounded by Garda caution tape as the search for evidence continued. Gardy said at that point that their investigation was proceeding well. They were mainly searching for physical evidence, and they were also happy with the public's response and cooperation with the investigation. They confirmed that no one had yet been questioned in relation to the murder inquiry. On the 26th of January, the Irish Times reported that Gardy said that the possibility that more than one person had been involved in the attack was not being discounted. They had removed a number of implements from the farm for examination to determine whether they had been used in the murder. Gardy continued their search over the following days, which included nearby ditches and outlying buildings on the farm. 600 questionnaires were also handed out to those living in the area to try and ascertain Paddy's last known movements and the whereabouts of locals at the presumed time of his death. On Wednesday the 31st of January, Gardy appealed for members of the public to come forward with any sightings of Paddy made since the previous Christmas, as well as any sightings of a Dublin-registered Ford van owned by Paddy Daly before the 20th of January. They said once again that there had been good cooperation from the public to that point, but continued that they thought that there might still be people out there with information that would be useful for the investigation, even if the witness themselves thought the detail might be small or insignificant. Later, Gardy revealed to the press that they believed it was possible that two weapons had been used in the attack on Mr. Daly, one blunt and one sharper. They also reiterated that they were following a definite line of inquiry in the case and confirmed that robbery seemed an unlikely motive, as Mr. Daly's wallet was found on his body after he was pulled from the well and there was a small sum of money in it. Early on the morning of Thursday the 8th of February, an arrest was finally made in the case. Paddy's 70-year-old brother, Sean Daly, was brought to Killarney Garda Station. After spending the day being interviewed by police there, he was arrested and brought before a special sitting of the District Court in Kenmare that evening, where he was formally charged with the murder of Paddy and was remanded in custody. The following day, Eugene Daly, Sean's younger son, who was 19 at the time, was also charged at a special sitting of the District Court in Kenmare. On Monday the 19th of February, Eugene and Sean Daly appeared at the High Court bail hearings to appeal the decision not to grant bail in their cases. The guardee involved in the case objected to bail for Eugene Daly, saying that they believed he might interfere with or intimidate witnesses. Garda Superintendent Michael O'Neill from Killarney Station asked that if bail were to be granted, Eugene would not be allowed to live at home and that he should get a flat for himself in Killarney. Eugene's lawyer said that this would cause undue hardship for his client as Eugene was a bit of a loner, did not socialise and only left his house once a week to sign on for the dole. The family kept to themselves, he said. And further, there was no evidence that Eugene would, in fact, intimidate witnesses. In the end, Sean Daly was granted bail on the condition that he sign on once a week with the guardee. Eugene was also granted bail and was allowed to live at his home, but he was to sign on with the guardee once a day. Both men were warned not to speak with anyone that the guardee had interviewed, whether they would be considered a witness or not. On 
On Monday, the 20th of April, 1998, Eugene Daly's trial began in the Central Criminal Court before Mr. Justice Paul Carney and a jury of five women and seven men. Sean Daly had been granted an application to have a separate trial and would, throughout this court proceeding, be referred to as the other man. Eugene Daly pleaded not guilty to the charge of murdering his uncle. Mr. Gregory Murphy acted as senior counsel for the state and began by outlining the family history to the jury, explaining how the farm had been inherited by Paddy in the first place and how it had been worked by his brother. Mr. Murphy went on to say that the year before his death a disagreement had occurred between Paddy and his extended family, and it was believed by the rest of the family that Paddy had asked an auctioneer to arrange a new lease with new tenants for him. Sean Daly and his sons had then received two solicitor's letters on behalf of Patrick Daly, complaining that the work being carried out on the farm was unsatisfactory. It was the state's case that the accused, Eugene, who by all accounts hadn't been much help on the farm, had acted in concert with another man, and they had planned and carried out the murder of his uncle, Patrick Daly. Eugene Daly was described as socially challenged and as a virtual recluse. The court also heard evidence that he had daubed graffiti in his uncle's farmyard in the weeks before Paddy's murder. Phrases like rotten hell, last warning, Irish Republican die, and goodbye shithead. Dr. Margaret Bolster gave evidence and described the injuries that Patrick had suffered in the attack before his discovery down the disused well. His cause of death was swelling of his brain and contusions and lacerations due to blunt force trauma to his head. Dr. Bolster agreed that from an examination of the injuries to Patrick's body, the blows struck were repeated and severe and that the attack was one showing considerable violence. An iron bar, which the prosecution said had been used in the attack, was shown to Dr. Bolster and she said it was consistent with the injuries that Paddy Daly had suffered. It had been discovered in a barrel hidden on the property. Factual evidence from the Gardaí was heard on Wednesday the 22nd of April. This had been agreed upon as uncontested by both sides. This evidence related to the earlier portion of the Garda investigation into Paddy Daly's disappearance and the subsequent discovery of his body. Garda witness Superintendent Michael O'Neill told the court that the local station had been notified on January 20th that Paddy Daly hadn't been seen in a while by a neighbour, and shortly after they received a similar report from family members. Gardy visited the farm that day and found no sign of him. The day after they went again to the Daly farm and saw that a boot impression that had been noted earlier near the well was gone, and that the well had been filled in a bit with sand. They became suspicious. The well was excavated on the 23rd of January and Paddy Daly's body was found. On Wednesday the 23rd of April, statements were read to the court made by Eugene Daly to the Gardee. He had been interviewed by the Gardee on the 8th of February and said that another man had become angry at Patrick Daly on the 18th of January and had lost control and hit Patrick with a rusted iron bar. Eugene said that this other man had caused the injuries and that he, quote, couldn't do anything about it, end quote. In the interview, Eugene said that after the attack, he'd put his uncle down the well and then cleaned up a van where he'd found bloodstains. Eugene also explained that he had dug up sods of earth where his uncle had fallen and bled onto the ground. 
he'd hid those in a field. The following day, after the arrest of the other man, Eugene's story changed. He had called the police and told them that he wanted to tell them the truth of what had happened. He was brought back to the station for a further interview, and this statement differed greatly to what he had said the day before. Eugene had said that on the Thursday morning of Paddy's death, he and the other man had discussed where they'd hide Paddy's body on the way to his house, and they'd, quote, worked it out that we'd end Paddy, and we did, end quote. Paddy and the other man had gotten into a heated argument when they arrived, and the other man began hitting Paddy. His uncle had fallen to the ground, and Eugene said that at that point, he'd kicked Paddy. After this, Eugene had dragged Paddy's body across the road and threw him headfirst into the well. Eugene also admitted that in the weeks prior to Patrick's murder, he had painted graffiti on the walls of the house and on abandoned cars in order to try and scare or intimidate his uncle. Eugene said he'd been asked to do so by another man. He had attempted to clean it off when his uncle's body had been found. The defendant had also told his brother James that their uncle had filled in the well two months before his death. The prosecution alleged that this was because Eugene feared that James was becoming suspicious of Eugene and the other man's plans relating to Patrick. Eugene Daly gave evidence in his own defence on Thursday the 23rd of April, but was on the stand for just three hours. He admitted having filled in the well, but said he wasn't the one who had killed his uncle. Previously, he had given conflicting statements regarding whether or not he or the other man, who he alleged was responsible for the killing, had filled in the well. On the stand, Eugene Daly repeated what he had said in his initial statement, that he had been standing by a pillar in the gate while the beating was going on. He told the jury that he had shouted for the other man to stop. Eugene admitted that he had cleaned up the farmyard and the van afterwards because he said there was simply no one else to do it and he hadn't gone to the police because he was afraid of being arrested as an accessory. Eugene admitted that he was aware of the tensions around the land but he hadn't been bothered with it, he said, and took no notice of it. Eugene Daly insisted that the statements made after his release before he was charged were not accurate. A senior clinical psychologist also gave evidence as part of the case for the defence. Eugene had been assessed as in a grey area between lower-than-average intelligence and what was referred to as a mild mental handicap. He also displayed antisocial behaviour and inappropriate smiling. There was, said the doctor, a quote-unquote deficiency in the defendant and the family had a history of mental health troubles. However, it was confirmed that there was no question of insanity or mental fitness to stand trial. The case for the defence then closed. On Friday the 25th of April, the prosecution and the defence made their closing statements. Eugene's defence lawyer said that his client should have faced a lesser charge for his role in the killing. Gregory Murphy, prosecuting, said that there would be a temptation to feel pity or sympathy for the defendant but there was a cunning and malicious aspect to the case and to Eugene Daly. Murphy went on to compare the affair to the plotline of the movie Deliverance, saying that the case revolved around poor white folk who lived out of the mainstream, which had resulted in a bizarre and horrific act. Mr Murphy reminded the jury that the defendant had admitted to hanging a dog belonging to the deceased and went on to say, quote, 
you could say he showed as much indifference to the killing of his uncle as he did to the death of the dog, end quote. There was a suggestion by Mr. Murphy that the killing had occurred particularly on that Thursday because Eugene's brother James would be away for the day, and Eugene and the other man knew that he would disapprove of their plan. The prosecuting counsel also questioned if there had been no intent to kill Patrick Daly, why it was that the defendant, who was not known for working on the farm, had knocked down a wall and piled up the stones from it, which were later used by him to fill in the well. Murphy brought attention to the fact that his own cross-examination of the defendant had been ineffective and strained because every time Eugene got stuck, he simply smiled or responded, so what? Murphy said, quote, Trying to cross-examine Mr. Daly is like trying to unload lorry loads of candy floss with a pitchfork. He tried to make out he lived in some fantasy world between Perry Mason and L.A. Law, end quote. Adrian Hardiman, defending, said that his client was a, quote, severely disadvantaged, poorly equipped young man, bordering on mental handicap, end quote and that Eugene should not be convicted unless there was very clear evidence that he was responsible for the murder. His client had rambled quite a bit, and he said Eugene had effectively, quote, talked himself into this charge. Mr. Hardiman outlined that his client had been released on the 8th of February, while the DPP decided to charge another man with murder, and by the end of the following day, after ringing the guardie himself, Eugene had been charged too. The statements were voluntary and Eugene had said what he said, but there was an argument to be made that the second statement was unreliable. The first statement from the 8th of February described the attack as spontaneous and having happened in a fit of rage. The second statement given by Eugene had described a premeditated planned murder. But throughout that interview, Hardiman's client had asked about this other man and was preoccupied with concern for the other man's well-being. Adrian Hardiman said that considering the evidence before the court, a lesser charge of concealment of a body would have been more appropriate in this case. He went on to argue that there was no evidence of conspiracy to murder. He said, quote, The most likely thing was that Eugene Daly was tagging along, like a little boy, end quote, just doing whatever was asked of him by the other man. After the closing statements, the court adjourned for the weekend with the instructions and charge to the jury to take place the following Monday, before jury deliberations began. Over the weekend, there was a lot of coverage of the trial, which had drawn comparisons with two very different films, both Deliverance and The Field. The defendant and his behaviour was of particular interest to the Irish Times, who reported that throughout the trial, Eugene had laughed. It appeared that he had tried to contain himself by putting a hand in front of his mouth, but the laughs escaped as his face turned red and his body shook. He laughed mostly in reaction to anything mentioned in the court relating to him, such as his fantasist notions about being in a mafioso-themed narrative, or when portions of his statement to the Gardaí were read, and even during the description given of Paddy Daly's horrific injuries. Eugene Daly hadn't been able to contain his nervous, compulsive laughter. During his evidence, Eugene had also told the jury, quote, I will walk, or that he would do at least 20 years and walk out of prison a young man. Court then resumed on Monday, and that afternoon, the jury were sent for deliberations. The five women and seven men were sent to a hotel overnight at the end of that day. They resumed their discussions 
on Tuesday the 28th and remained sequestered for the entirety of that day. Mr Justice Paul Carney called them back into the court at five minutes to six and asked had they reached a decision. They had not. They hadn't even reached a majority decision with ten of their number in agreement. When Mr Justice Carney asked if they wanted to be sent to a hotel again that night and if they thought that they might at some point be able to reach a consensus, the foreperson said no, they wouldn't. The jury was then discharged. Because the jury had failed to reach a verdict, Eugene Daly was released on continuing bail and Mr Justice Carney said that the case would have to have a new date fixed as soon as possible. The defence lawyers said that they presumed that their client would be returning to Tralee General Psychiatric Hospital, where he had been receiving treatment up until the trial had begun. On the 17th of July 1998, two months after Eugene Daly's trial, failed to reach a conclusion and, after a delay of two weeks, his father Sean Daly was to stand trial also charged with the murder of Patrick Daly. But just after the jury was sworn, the court realised that the proceedings were likely to continue on past the end of the court term and into the month of August. A number of the jury members were reported to have informed the courts of various commitments, including holidays, and in fairness to them, Mr Justice Shanley agreed that a new date would have to be found. It would be nearly a year before Sean Daly would return to face trial in the Central Criminal Court. His trial opened on the 28th of June, 1999. Mr John Edwards, who appeared alongside Mr Gregory Murphy for the state before Mr Justice Barr, told the court in his opening statement that Paddy had disappeared just nine days after sending a solicitor's letter to the defendant. The solicitor's letter laid out that Paddy had instructed that Sean had quote-unquote interfered with his affairs and this was causing distress. The letter went on to ask Sean to, quote, be good enough to know that your brother wishes to organise his own affairs, end quote. Because of this letter, the state said Sean had been upset. Tom Kelleher, a friend of Paddy Daly for 30 years, told the court about his interactions with the deceased during the week he disappeared. The two men were in the habit of seeing each other a few times a week. Tom had seen Paddy on the Wednesday evening and Tom said that the other man was irritated, though he hadn't said why. Mr Kelleher had expected to see Paddy again the next morning. He was to call over and help him load some cattle for the mart. But Paddy never arrived. Mr Kelleher told the court he'd assumed that Paddy had become ill. Later that day, Mr Kelleher had run into Sean and Eugene Daly while he was driving in the cattle from his field. Tom said, that Sean had asked him if Paddy was up at his, but the witness had said no. Sean then told him that Paddy must be gone. Then Sean said that Eugene had gone up to Paddy's house and had seen the front gate open and footprints going off to the right. Tom replied that Paddy couldn't be gone too far then. But Mr Kelleher said Sean then said that he believed that Paddy had gone off. He went on to say to the witness that he and his son Eugene had cleaned Paddy's house up because it had been dirty and covered in dog feces. The house had been locked and the two men had forced the door. They had also forced the door of the bedroom, he said, where they found Paddy's bed was made up and not slept in. Mr Kelleher recalled that he and James had searched along the riverbank and around a lime kiln on the farm the following day after Sean had asked them to go out and look for signs of Paddy. They hadn't found anything. 
On hearing this, Sean had again said to Mr. Kelleher, quote, he was stone mad and gone away and he'd left all the lights on in the house and he mightn't come back, end quote. Tom Kelleher said he had asked Sean Daly what about the well and Sean had told him that the well had been shut up for around two weeks, that it had been filled up with stones. But on cross-examination by Paddy McEntee, acting for the defence, Mr. Callagher admitted that he wasn't sure which day the well had been brought up by Sean and agreed that it was hard for him to remember who had said what and when. Callagher also agreed with Mr. McEntee that Paddy could have depressive moments from time to time. Further, according to the Irish Times, Tom said that Paddy would occasionally, quote, say things only remotely connected with reality, end quote, in times that the witness described as fanciful moments. Mr. Kelleher told the court that he had reported his friend missing after there was no sign of him for a few days. Garda George Payne of Killarney recounted having taken Mr. Kelleher's report of Paddy Daly being missing, as well as the report made by Sean shortly after. Mr. Kelleher had told him that the previous Wednesday Paddy had seemed depressed and was talking about Kelleher taking his dogs for him, or that he wanted to have the dog's original owner take it away the following Friday, implying that the missing man might be depressed and giving away his belongings. Then, Sergeant Margaret Nugent of Killarney Station also took the stand and described an interview she had had with the defendant. Sean Daly told her that he and his brother had a partnership in the farm for tax purposes and that Paddy had been satisfied with the work being done on the farm. Sean told her that he had last seen his brother at 9am on Thursday morning, the 18th of January, at the back door to the farmhouse. The sergeant said that Sean had told her that at half past ten that morning, Sean, his sons and daughter had gone into Killarney and they had gotten home around three hours later. But Mr Daly had said that he hadn't been feeling well and so had then gone to bed. Sean said he hadn't gotten up then until half five and he'd noticed a fire smouldering outside Paddy's house. He'd said Eugene was burning some old papers. Sean told the Garda he'd then seen a figure of a man in Paddy's house at around 6pm and he'd assumed that this was Paddy. Sean Daly then said that he and his sons had gone over to Paddy's around 9pm and had shone a torch into the house but saw nothing. The following morning they went looking for Paddy again and had looked along the river. Sean had told Sergeant Nugent that at this point they were beginning to get worried. The defendant had then explained to her that he had called to Paddy's house that day, the day of the interview, the 20th of January, and found that the bed hadn't been slept in. Sean had asked his wife if he should notify the guardie and they'd placed the call to the station just after. In this statement, Sean had also said that he hadn't seen Paddy filling in the well on the property and had been surprised to find out that it had been done. Sean said he had no idea when Paddy had done this. During the search on Tuesday the 23rd, Sean had told Gardy he'd looked at the well himself and had quote-unquote written it off as a possible explanation for his brother's disappearance. In the course of the same search, the court was told that Gardy had found a Building Society saving account book in Paddy's name and showed that £2,000 had been withdrawn on the 12th of January. There was also a letter from St. Finan's Psychiatric Hospital with an appointment for that week to review Paddy's medication. Christopher O'Leary, the nearest neighbour to Paddy, gave evidence that he'd last seen the deceased on Thursday morning. 
he and his wife had heard noises the following night coming from their kitchen. When they went to look for the cause of the noise, they found Eugene Daly alone in the dark kitchen with a torch in his hand. Mr. O'Leary said Eugene explained to them that he was out looking for Paddy, who had gone missing. Mr. O'Leary told the court that Eugene had never been in his house before, and he could think of no reason why he was there that night. It was strange, he said. He'd also heard Eugene on the Saturday night in Paddy's kitchen and thought he was speaking to someone else present in the room as he could see that Eugene was talking. But Mr. O'Leary said on the stand that he hadn't heard another voice at that time. On Wednesday the 30th of June, the third day of the trial, Inspector Michael O'Donovan told the court how he had directed three members of the civil defence to take the concrete cover off the well. They saw it had been filled almost to the top with dry sand and raked. On the 23rd, they returned to the farm. The inspector had questioned Sean Daly and his sons and then went over to the well. He told the court that he had been suspicious of it. Inspector O'Donovan then had the cap moved off again and noted that the sand looked different. When Sean was informed that it was the inspector's intention to excavate the well, Sean Daly took a long iron bar and probed the sand, telling the guard that there was nothing down there but rocks. O'Donovan testified that when the excavation began, Sean Daly was not with those carrying out the operation but it was noted that he was seen standing in the nearby farmyard, looking down on the well, holding a pitchfork in his hand and shaking his head. On cross-examination, Paddy McEntee asked the inspector specifically about the notes he had taken after meeting Sean Daly. The guard had taken down his impression of Sean Daly and wrote, quote, tough, stubborn, said very little. Everything had to be dragged out of him. Seemed to be letting on that he was confused, end quote. McEntee put it to Inspector O'Donovan that the remarks were snide, but Inspector O'Donovan responded that it was only his opinion and impression from the time. The inspector was also asked why it was that he'd spoken to the members of the Daly family in his patrol car. O'Donovan said that he'd done this because the family had a habit of coming out of the house to talk, or they'd just stand at the door, so it seemed most convenient to use the car. It was Paddy McEntee's assertion that the Gardy had approached the Daly family from the outset with an attitude that they were going to show them who was boss. Taking Sean Daly's statement in the car, which took over three hours, was a sort of power play on behalf of the Gardy, and it was not appropriate. In fact, the court heard that Margaret, one of Sean Daly's daughters, had questioned the appropriateness of the interview in the patrol car, but said that she'd been told at the time that it would be more private in the car than in the house. It was also alleged that another Garda had bolted the door from the outside when Daly had gone to sit in the car, meaning that Sean could not leave by that door. Sergeant Margaret Nugent had said while on the stand that she couldn't recall if Margaret Daly had been present at the time of the interview with her father and confirmed that she hadn't seen the door bolted. During her testimony, Nugent had recounted that as the officers stood at the door, Sean Daly had agreed to be interviewed and the guards had stood in silence, waiting to be asked in, but they weren't. So they asked Mr. Daly to come out to the car. Sergeant Nugent said that the house would have been a better location, but also said that she felt to invite herself in would have invaded Sean Daly's privacy. The following day, the fourth of the proceedings, there were a number of legal submissions made to Mr. Justice Barr. 
Afterwards, the judge called the jury back in and said, quote, A difficulty has arisen in connection with this trial, relating to possible additional evidence that has just come to light. End quote. It was the decision of the court that, due to this, it was not possible for the trial to continue. The jury was discharged, and Sean Daly was remanded on continuing bail. In the days after the collapse of the trial, it was reported that the prosecution had been due to call the solicitors who had acted on behalf of Paddy Daly to give evidence. There would be no further action in the case until February 2001, when Eugene Daly appeared in court before Mr Justice Butler to face the charge of murdering Patrick Daly, his uncle, for a second time. By that stage, Sean Daly had passed away. He had died the year before, aged 74. As he had in 1998, Eugene pleaded not guilty to the charge of murder for a second time. Garda Margaret Nugent was once again called to give evidence regarding her interactions and interviews with the Daly family after the discovery of Paddy Daly's body. Eugene had been nearby as Paddy's body was pulled from the well and had said to her that the family might need to have a closed coffin at the funeral if Paddy's face was in bits. At the time, no one knew what his condition was or even his cause of death. Then, a statement made by Eugene's father, Sean Daly, before his death to Garda Morris O'Connor was read to the court. In the statement, Sean had told the Garda that he had gone to Paddy's house because he was upset about the solicitor's letter. They'd argued, and Sean had said he'd picked up, quote-unquote, a steel thing, left the house and struck Paddy with it. He'd hit him around the temple. Sean Daly had told the guard, quote, I don't remember. I just lost control of myself. I remember Pat fell to the ground. I was bad with the temper. Jean came out and kicked him, but I hit him, me and me alone. End quote. But just days after commencing, on Friday the 2nd of March, Eugene Daly's trial for murder again collapsed after a member of the jury approached an official of the court and said that an attempt had been made to influence the jury. The case was entered on the list to fix dates, and Eugene Daly was once again remanded on continuing bail. On the 1st of September 2003, the proceedings began once again against Eugene Daly, now represented by Brendan Grehan, Senior Counsel, this time before Mr Justice Abbott and a jury of six men and six women. The trial had been scheduled for March of 2002, but Due to a shortage of judges, a new trial date had to be fixed. The state, represented by Dennis Vaughan Buckley, once again laid out their case that Eugene and his father had acted in concert to kill Patrick Daly and that Eugene had assisted his father in the attack and buried the body afterwards. Parts of the interviews taken on the 9th of February 1996 were read to the court where Eugene admitted kicking his uncle after his father, Sean, had struck the man with the iron bar. Eugene had told the guards at the time that he and his father had gone down to Patrick's house to, quote, sort it out once and for all, end quote. When asked to clarify what this meant exactly, Eugene had said that he was referring to a family dispute. Quote, the bad blood between Paddy and ourselves that started 30 years ago, 
Dad said if he did not agree with us, he would finish him off, kill him, waste him, rub him out, end quote. Inspector O'Donovan told the court that in that interview, Eugene had said, quote, Dad and I thought about this a good while back. We'd have a better time and more money if Paddy wasn't around. In the car, we decided to get Paddy on his own and do a job on him. We discussed where we'd get rid of him. We worked it out that we'd end Paddy, and we did, end quote. According to the statement made by Eugene, when he and his father arrived at Paddy's house, Paddy had told them to get lost and to leave him alone. Then Eugene had seen his father take up the iron bar and strike his uncle. When Paddy was on the ground, Eugene said he'd kicked him a few times to make sure that he was dead, and then he'd put Paddy's body down the well and covered it over with plastic, stones, and sand. Eugene told the police that he'd had steel-toed boots on and had kicked Paddy to help his dad to do him a favour. Quote, I just kicked him for a sick kind of thrill. It felt good to get rid of Paddy. I threw Paddy in the well head first, end quote. Further elements of that statement were heard the following day, where Eugene had told the guardie his father Sean hadn't liked the way Paddy was going on and that there would be trouble if he didn't stop his fighting. Eugene also said that Paddy had lain in a heap on the grass with blood trickling from his head after the attack. Neither man had checked to see if he was really dead. Eugene just told Gardy that he'd presumed that this was the case when Eugene started dragging his uncle over to the well and there was no noise from him. He'd put Paddy in the well head first after this and his father had told him to tidy up. Then they'd cleaned up the blood with water and a rag and had brushed down the farmyard to remove the blood from the ground. Eugene had taken the iron bar and washed it down over the kitchen sink. There had been blood on it when his father left it propped against a wall. Eugene had then placed it in a barrel in order to try and hide it from the guardie. According to the evidence of Detective Superintendent John O'Mahony, Eugene told police that the two of them had then stayed there until 6pm that evening cleaning. Eugene had said to the inspector at the time of the statement that he wished he could turn back time, and also said that he and his father never told his brother Jim what had happened. His brother had been close with Paddy, and Eugene said he'd been afraid that Jim would go nuts and turn them into the police. On the third day of the trial, Dr. Margaret Bolster appeared to deliver her post-mortem findings again, and went through the severe injuries that Patrick Daly had suffered to his head and body. She also confirmed that Mr. Daly was dead before he'd been put into the well, saying that Paddy's death would have been very rapid. The wounds to his head were so severe that brain tissue had been found on his jumper. Mr. John Kelly, a retired psychiatric nurse, took to the stand on Thursday the 4th of September and described his interactions with the accused. Eugene had been admitted to a psychiatric hospital for post-traumatic stress after his uncle's death. Mr. Kelly also recalled for the court that he had received a phone call from Sean Daly before Paddy's death to tell the witness that he believed his brother was behaving erratically. Mr. Kelly had arranged an outpatient appointment for Paddy to take place on January the 22nd. Under cross-examination, Mr. Kelly said that there was a history of mental health struggles in the Daly family. Two members had been diagnosed or hospitalized for schizophrenia. Mr. Patrick Daly had suffered with bipolar disorder and Mr. Kelly said it was fair to say that, quote, Sean supported Paddy over the years. He was always concerned, end quote. 
Detective Gerda Noel Brown, giving evidence on Friday the 5th, described how Eugene had cried when his uncle's boot was uncovered in the course of the excavation of the well. The detective said that he'd heard Eugene say, quote, Jesus, tis awful. He should not have gone that way. People who do that stuff don't stay around. No way, end quote. The Garda also said Eugene was concerned at the idea that neighbours might think that the family had something to do with Patty's death. He asked if the papers would be around, and if he would be allowed to go and collect his dole the following Thursday, concerned again with what the neighbours might think, and anxious to get across that no one in the family had played any part in Paddy being down the well. The Garda said he found these remarks unusual in the circumstances. After the discovery of Paddy's body, Eugene had told the police he'd heard Paddy say he was going to, quote, end it all and would do it where no one would find him, end quote. Then the trial adjourned for the weekend. The first portion of the following week was taken up with legal argument, with proceedings continuing on Thursday the 11th of September 2003, when Eugene Daly took the stand in his own defence. Mr. Grehan defending said that there was no real issue with the narrative of what had happened to Paddy Daly. It was an issue with the charge that Eugene was facing. The defence was arguing that Eugene was in fact an accessory after the fact. On the stand, Eugene tried to explain his various statements made to the guardie around the time of his father's arrest and after Patrick Daly's death. He said that at the time he had wanted to be a tough guy, that he was in the habit of retreating into fantasy and had imagined his uncle's killing to be more like a plotline to a mafia movie than real life. Eugene also said that he had been very close to his father and after Sean Daly's arrest, he couldn't bear the idea that he would be alone in jail and so confessed as well in order to help bear the load of it. Eugene now insisted that when he had said that Paddy's killing had been premeditated, that he and his father had gone to the farm with the intention of hurting or killing him if Paddy didn't agree to their demands, that this too was part of this notion of being tough and likened it to the TV show Taggart. During his time on the stand, Eugene Daly said of himself, quote, I'm the only cowboy that's standing after the gunfight, end quote. The closing statements were made on Friday the 12th. Dennis von Buckley, acting on behalf of the Director of Public Prosecutions, said simply that the accused had admitted to the premeditated murder, and that this was what he was guilty of. There was overwhelming evidence of his guilt and participation in the murder of his uncle. Brendan Grehan's senior counsel told the jury that Eugene had walked in the shadow of his father. The defence counsel also suggested that it would be difficult for the jury to try and put themselves in the shoes of Eugene, who had lived an impoverished and isolated life, saying, quote, You could be forgiven for concluding that, for Mr. Daly, the lines between reality and fiction are not entirely convincing. End quote. On the 17th of September, after nearly nine hours of deliberation over three days, the jury returned with their verdict. They found Eugene Daly not guilty of the murder of his uncle Paddy in January of 1996, but instead he was guilty of manslaughter. Brendan Grehan asked Mr. Justice Henry Abbott not to delay sentencing saying his client was anxious to know his fate rather than wait for a separate sentencing hearing. Mr Justice Abbott considered a number of factors to determine the term that Eugene Daly would serve. 
He said that Daly was young at the time of the offence. He said that Daly was young at the time of the offence and had come from a disadvantaged background. He'd also endured seven and a half years of stress awaiting the outcome of the proceedings. However, the judge also noted that the killing itself had not been entirely spontaneous and there had been a, quote, degree of callousness shown by the accused in the way he disposed of his uncle's body, along with the fact that he had done nothing to assist his uncle during the course of the attack. Brendan Grehan also pointed out to the court that by virtue of his conviction for manslaughter in the case, Daly would no longer have a share of his inheritance of the family farm, which was then valued in the region of one million euros. Abbott said that though he had taken this into consideration, Eugene Daly must now, quote, bear the burden of his loss, end quote, due to his part in the killing of his uncle. In the end, Mr Justice Abbott handed down a sentence of 10 years and 11 months for the manslaughter of Paddy Daly. Leave to appeal was refused, but Mr Justice Abbott said he would recommend that Mr Daly serve his sentence in Cork. None of the other members of the Daly family were present in court to hear the verdict, and the Irish Times reported that Eugene himself looked slightly shocked as the sentence was imposed. A week after the proceedings finished, the solicitor working on behalf of Eugene Daly, Mr Pat O'Connor, said that they would be making an application for appeal. It was a hotly contested case, he had said, and described the nearly 11-year sentence as, quote, a whacker. In February of 2005, the case came before the appeals court. The judges there concluded that Eugene Daly's father had carried out the fatal assault, and though the defendant was present and made no attempt to interfere in the assault, Eugene's father had played a, quote, significant and dominant role in his life and thinking, end quote. The fact that Eugene Daly had no previous convictions needed to be taken into account and the court acknowledged that the sentence handed down by the trial judge was at the extreme end of the range in terms of severity. Mr Justice Kearns, delivering the judgment for the three-judge court, said that they were satisfied that Eugene Daly had not been the quote-unquote prime mover in what had happened. He also noted that this was the kind of case that happened occasionally in rural areas where the lack of social contact resulted in strange events. Eugene Daly's conviction was upheld, but his sentence was reduced to just six years. This meant that Eugene would be ready for release in 2009. In the nearly ten years since Paddy Daly's killing, the old farmhouse in Upper Dunin had become dilapidated. By the close of the trial, no one lived in the large farmhouse, though Mary Daly and some of her children continued to live in the smaller house nearby. Since his imprisonment, there has been no news of Eugene Daly, not even of his release. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Mens Rea Pod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week to Christina Sterling-Berry, Monica McAvoy, Sheila Scarrow, Jane Wiseheart, Sam, Becca Last, Louise Pryor, Max DeVree, Marie Hannon, John A.C. McGowan, Gabby, and Joanne Forster. 
Thanks so much to everyone who has signed up and to everyone who continues to support the show. It is hugely important to be able to keep Mens Rea going, and along with the brownie points of helping out, you get ad-free and bonus episodes and nifty merch. There's also now an option to sign up for an annual membership, which comes with a 15% discount. So check it out at patreon.com forward slash mensreapod. Also, check out our new shop at TeePublic, where you can get all sorts of lovely Mens Rea merch. There are some new designs, and there's a sale going on the day this comes out to celebrate the relaunch. So go check out bit.ly forward slash Mens Rea merch, or follow the link in the show notes. Thanks also to our sponsors for this week, ExpressVPN, June's Journey, BetterHelp, and Best Fiends. Remember, supporting our sponsors supports this show. So head to the show notes and check them out. It couldn't be easier. Our theme music is Quinn's Song, The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music is by Winita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This podcast was researched, written, and produced by me, your host Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. And so, till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Oh, hey there. You like true crime stories, right? Yeah, yeah, I know. Who doesn't? But I gotta admit, after a while, all those stories of murder and heartache, well, they tend to go straight to my hips. So that's why I, Leroy Luna, have created a podcast called Excuse Me, That's Illegal, where we'll take a hardcore look at some softcore crimes. No TED Talks on Bundy here. The letters BTK won't be coming from these lips. Unless he had a brother that used to steal library books. Suppose I'd be willing to go balls deep into that one if that were the case. Anyways, you'll hear stories such as the Mad Pooper, a female jogger who wreaked havoc in a Colorado Springs neighborhood, using one family's front yard as her own personal dumping grounds. If this kind of content sounds like it's up your alley, excuse me, that's illegal, is available right now on all your favorite podcatchers. So come join me. I'll be right here waiting for you.